0: At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Men of God Podcast. The Men of God Podcast is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, www.puritanaudiobooks.com. In this episode of the Men of God Podcast, I want to talk about the fanaticism of a man named James Davenport, who wreaked havoc during the First Great Awakening. Let's talk about his rise, progress, excesses, recovery, and retractions. There's so much to be ascertained here in the indiscreet zeal of Davenport that can be lessons learned for young pastors aspiring to the ministry. This is from Joseph Tracy's The Great Awakening to begin with and then ended with... Something out of the Life of asahel Nettleton by Bennett Tyler. Repeated mention has been made in the course of this history of the Reverend James Davenport of Southold Long Island. He was a favorite of George Whitfield, who met him in New Jersey and had stood high in the opinion of the tenants. The Reverend Andrew Croswell, in a pamphlet in his defense, produced numerous testimonies in favour, for example. mister Whitfield declared in conversation that he never knew one keep so close a walk with God as mister Davenport. Mr. Tennant, in my hearing, affirmed that Mr. Davenport to be one of the most heavenly men he ever was acquainted with. Mr. Pomeroy, who is acquainted with both, thinks he does not come one whit behind George Whitfield, but rather goes beyond him for heavenly communion and fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Mr. Parsons of Lyme told me the other day, this is July 16th of 1742, that not one minister whom he had seen was to be compared to James Davenport for living near to God and having his conversation always in heaven. Mr. Owen also wrote and said that the idea he had of the apostles themselves scarcely exceeded what he saw in Mr. Davenport. In brief, there is not one minister in all of Connecticut that is zealously affected in a good cause of God at this day, but instead of slighting him, is apt to think more highly of him than we ought to think of men and to receive him almost as if he was an angel from heaven. This is the statement of an honest partisan, so far as a partisan can be honest, not false but too highly colored. Davenport had certainly produced wonderful effects and collected a large tribute of veneration. He rode, to use language of a more modern date, on a very top wave of the spirit of the age More than any other man, he embodied in himself, and promoted in others all the unsafe extravagances into which the revival was running, and those whose zeal outran their knowledge saw in him what they proudly hoped soon to become, and admired the spirit of the age as it appeared in him, and admired their own spirit full-grown. Such a man could not fail to have a popularity violent in his favor and vindictive against all his opposers as he went foremost in the wrong direction which the revival had begun to take he was regarded by multitudes as its model man by comparison with whom all others were to be judged as appears from the concurrent testimony of all parties his influence mainly brought the revival to a crisis he led it so deeply into such errors that it ought to stop and provoked the opposition which brought it to an end a knowledge of his character and proceeding is therefore of the first importance to one who would understand the history of his times and it is to be regretted that we have not as full and minute accounts of his whole life as we have of some parts of it It is also to be regretted that nearly all we have, except indefinite praise, comes to us through his decided opponents. Still, it seems possible, by omitting all facts concerning which prejudice might mislead the witnesses, to make out a well-authenticated history of his proceedings, sufficiently complete to show their true character. For an account of the commencement of his career, we are indebted to the Rev. William Hart, pastor of the First Church in Saybrook, Massachusetts, Mr. Hart appears to have been a man of good character, moderately Calvinistic, and had been condemned by Davenport as unconverted. He learned many of the particulars from Davenport himself and others in South Hole, New Jersey, which he visited perhaps for that very purpose. The account was addressed to Dr. Chauncey and appears in his work on the state of religion in New England. It seems that when the reports concerning Whitfield's labors and success first reached Long Island, both James Davenport and barber of oyster-ponds received him as an angel of god and were confident that a glorious revival of religion was about to pervade the land they betook themselves to special prayer that god would hasten the work teach them what he was about to do and make them eminent instruments in promoting it from their subsequent career it appears neither unreasonable nor uncharitable to suppose that their prayers were inspired in part by a sincere zeal for god and for the salvation of souls and in part by pleasing visions of their own future greatness as eminent instruments of its promotion though of this last element of their feelings they probably were not aware after some time the words in habakkuk two verse three for the vision is yet for an appointed time but at the end it shall speak it shall not lie though it tarry wait for it because it will surely come it will not tarry were strongly impressed on barber's mind which he took as the divine intimation that their expectations should be fulfilled he informed james davenport of the impression on whom it had a similar effect soon after it must have been about the beginning of march seventeen forty Barber sat up all, or nearly all, of Saturday night, meditating on these things, and at family worship the next morning, as he was reading Psalm 102, verse 13, was impressed upon his mind. The words are, Thou shalt arise, and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. This he took as an intimation from heaven that the great revival which he had been expecting should immediately commence, and as an order to begin his labors without delay he fainted but recovered so as to attend public worship at the usual hour he spent about a week in visiting and exhorting his people telling of the wonderful discoveries that god had made to him and how he had fainted at the vision he then left oyster ponds to go forth and proclaim the gospel abroad intending to obey a scriptural direction he took no money no change of apparel nor yet shoes but was shod with boots He declared that he had laid aside all premeditation, being taught on every occasion directly by the Holy Ghost what he should say and where he should go. He came first to Davenport at Southhold, whose mind had been impressed with the words of Psalm 115, verses 12 to 14. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children." davenport assembled his people and barber addressed him in his usual style after visiting all parts of south hole barber went about twenty miles to oldman's having delivered his message here he ceased to receive the usual directions as to his course and could do nothing while the cloud abode upon the tabernacle He refused to preach when requested. Some of his own people visited him to urge his return, but in vain. Here he remained in idleness for several months till he grew fat and ragged. At length, after a few excursions in the vicinity, he returned to Oyster Ponds and soon proceeded to Rhode Island to meet George Whitfield. The account of their meeting was already been given in Whitfield's own words. Whitfield took him to Georgia and made him superintendent of spiritual affairs in his orphan house. After Barber's visit to South Hole, James Davenport commenced his extraordinary labors, but at first only among his own people. He assembled them at his lodgings and addressed them for almost 24 hours together. The effort overcame his strength, and he was confined for several days to his chamber. It is not improbable that the feeble state of his body, which afterwards certainly affected the soundness of his mind, had already commenced. His church seems to have been, like many others, in a bad condition containing many unconverted members at least he thought so and began to make distinctions accordingly in his public treatment of them calling those whom he esteemed regenerate brother and the others neighbor he soon forbade the neighbors to come to the lord's table this produced no little excitement but as he believed the divine blessing attended his preaching and measures and about 20 of his people were converted he came very near attempting to work a miracle a woman in an adjoining parish had long been insane and for some time dumb devonport fasted and prayed for her recovery and gave out that she would recover on a certain day that he named on that very day she died he claimed the event as an answer to his prayer as she was relieved from her infirmity by being taken to heaven this is in the summer of seventeen forty not far from the time when george whitfield saw him in new jersey and was so much pleased with his piety of the commencement of his itinerations the date is lacking but we have his own account of the principal facts as he related them to the boston pastors in seventeen forty two one of his brethren proposed to him to go forth and preach beyond the bounds of his own parish but he made no reply at the time not knowing the will of the lord concerning it He, however, made it a subject of prayer, and after some time, on opening his Bible, though he had no thought of turning to that passage, his eye fell on the account of the attack which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made on the Philistines. As he read, he saw every line, every word, in a new light. The Lord caused it to make a strong impression on his mind as jonathan and his armor-bearer went to the camp of the philistines so the lord called him and the man just mentioned to go to east hampton where they should convert as many as jonathan and his armor-bearer slew but as jonathan had a sign that he should not attack the garrison unless the philistines called him come up hither so he must wait till he was invited to east hampton At length, some of the people in East Hampton said that they should like to have him come and preach to them. He went, with his friend before mentioned, up to their knees in snow, as Jonathan and his armor-bearer climbed up the hill to the Philistines on their hands and knees. The result was according to their expectation, for twenty were converted. This same man generally accompanied him in his future itinerations, as was called by Davenport and by others throughout the country, his armor-bearer the reader must not set aside this account as a caricature true dr chauncey was a reporter but davenport told the story in the presence of at least a dozen witnesses ministers of boston and charleston many of whom were staunch friends and active promoters of the revival so that chauncey could not have dared materially to alter the facts even if he had been wicked enough to desire it and the facts are of such a character that no choice of language can essentially change their appearance in June of seventeen forty during a session of the Presbyterian synod we find davenport at Philadelphia preaching at Society Hill with the tenants and others in the autumn he joined Whitfield who wrote in his journal october thirtieth on arriving at new york to add to my comfort the Lord brought my dear brother davenport from Long Island by whose hands the blessed Jesus has of late done great things having parted they met again november fifth at Baskinridge, new jersey where davenport had been preaching to mr cross's parishioners. here we lose sight of him until the next spring or summer it was on or near the fourteenth of july in seventeen forty one that davenport came from long island to stonington connecticut here it was said near one hundred persons were struck under conviction by his first sermon and about that number converted in eight days including about twenty indians and that many were left under hopeful convictions from stoneton he visited westerly rhode island of his labor's there, a favorable account by park the missionary has been given in a preceding chapter the history of subsequent years shows that a considerable part of these supposed conversions among the indians were genuine in many of the towns in that region he condemned the ministers as unconverted and exhorted their people to leave them among those whom he condemned was the venerable eliphalet adams of wyndham connecticut whose faithful labors had been a principal means of preserving the flame of piety in that region from extinction and under whom there had been a happy revival in seventeen twenty one the period of deepest darkness in new england Here, his influence in producing alienations and divisions is said to have been peculiarly unhappy, though no particulars are given, and a report of injustice done to a man so extensively known and revered, and throughout the country. In Lyme, he was received with a qualified approbation by Parsons and Griswold, but produced no very remarkable effects. On the 25th of August, he called on Mr. Hart of Saybrook and asked if he was willing that he should preach in his pulpit. Mr. Hart, before answering, asked him if it was his practice as reported publicly to condemn ministers as unconverted. He replied that it was. Mr. Hart asked on what evidence he condemned them. Instead of answering that question, he stated the object for which he did it, which was for the purification of the churches and the discovery of the unconverted, that they might be avoided in answer to other questions he avowed that he encouraged the establishment of separate meetings of the converted and the labors of itinerant exhorters after a vain attempt to procure some concession from him mr hart refused him the use of his pulpit he then said to his attendants come let us go forth without the camp after the lord jesus bearing his reproach oh tis pleasant to suffer reproach for the blessed jesus sweet jesus the next day four ministers the reverend mr worthington not Beckwith, and Hart, called upon him to converse with him on his mode of proceeding, but it was found impossible to converse with him. He commenced a vehement discourse to them, and would not be interrupted, lecturing them as unconverted men, blind guides, wolves and sheep's clothing, and the like, then offered a prayer partly for their conversion and partly against them, and then left them to attend a meeting which he had appointed, refusing to decide whether he would grant them an interview at any future time." he had given out before his arrival that he had a great work to do at saybrook but the event seems to have fallen short of his expectation he continued his course to new haven calling on ministers by the way demanding of each an account of his religious experience and condemning all who refused to give it or whose accounts were unsatisfactory or who in any way opposed his movements as unconverted he seems to have considered himself specially commissioned for this work for he declared at stonington that god had promised to call a number of unconverted ministers by impressing on his mind the word, he will bless the house of aaron he arrived at new haven in september ere a general revival had commenced the preceding winter and its influence still remained His descent from the famous John Davenport, the first pastor of that church, his consanguinity with several respectable families, and especially his reputation for uncommon sanctity and usefulness, procured him a favorable reception. Mr. Noyes, the pastor of the church, admitted him to his pulpit, and there appears to have been no visible opposition till he pronounced Mr. Noyes an unconverted man. On this, Mr. Noyes called a meeting of several friends, September 21st, among whom were the principal officers of Yale College, to whom Davenport gave some very frivolous reasons for believing that Mr. Noyes was unconverted. The result was that he was thenceforth excluded from the pulpit. How long he continued there is uncertain, but after his departure and before the end of the year, his followers organized a separate church, which, after several years of controversy, Numerous councils and some confessions came to be acknowledged as a regular church and still subsists and flourishes. While here there were a few instances of trances and visions among his adherents, he probably spent a winter at Southhold. Among those who suffered temporary injury from the influence of his labors at New Haven, the celebrated missionary David Brainerd ought probably to be mentioned. Brainerd dated his conversion from July 12th. 1739 he became a member of yale college in september of that year during the revival of 1741 he was much quickened and used to meet frequently with a few religious friends for unreserved and confidential religious intercourse in the winter of 1742 a woman told president Clapp that a freshman told her that he had heard brainard say of somebody he has no more grace in this chair and he guessed that brainard was speaking of some of the faculty the words had been uttered in the hall where Brainerd and two or three others of his religious circle were conversing and the listener was in an adjoining room president clapp sent for the freshmen ascertained who were conversing with Brainerd, called them and extorted from them the fact that the words were used in reply to a question what do you think of tudor wittlesley mr whittlesay was a man whose piety there was no good reason to question brainer deserved to be privately reprimanded and made to confess his fault before those who heard him commit it but he was required to make a public confession disgusted with the harshness of the sentence and with the meanness of thus faring out a private conversation he refused was expelled from college and though powerful influences used in his favor never permitted to rejoin his class he had also once attended a meeting of the separatists when forbidden by the rector, and it was reported but not proved that he had said he wondered the rector did not expect to drop down dead for finding the scholars who followed Mr. Tennant to Milford. There can be no doubt that he was guilty of improprieties, of which we have no account, for he afterwards burned his diary for thirteen months, including the time of his expulsion, inserting a notice at the beginning of the succeeding manuscripts that a specimen of his manner of living during that entire period would be found in the first thirty pages next following, except that he was now more refined from some imprudences and indecent heats than before, in Jonathan Edwards' life of Brainerd he died in october ninth seventeen forty seven jonathan Edwards thought him less careful of life and health than duty required and the inquiry deserves attention how far the false views of duty into which this revival led him and which led him into imprudences and indecent heats continued to influence him and hurried him to his grave on the twenty ninth of May 1742, two persons, Captain Blacklatch and Samuel Adams of Ripton Parish in Stratford, Connecticut, came to Hartford where the General Assembly was in session and filed their complaint with the secretary stating that James Davenport had arrived there about 10 days before and Benjamin Pomroy soon after, and that with certain illiterate persons exhorters they were collecting assemblies of people mostly children and youth and under pretense of religious exercises were inflaming them with a bad spirit and with doctrines subversive of all law and order by which the peace of the town was greatly disturbed a warrant was therefore issued and davenport and pomroy were brought before the assembly on the first of june the investigation of the case occupied a considerable part of two days it appeared from the testimony that he preached prayed and exhorted with even more than his usual vehemence of language and gesture denounced ministers as unconverted without reserve and urged a duty of all to sustain the work in defiance even of the commands of parents or the laws of the colony the assembly at this very session had enacted a law for regulating abuses and correcting disorders in ecclesiastical affairs this law was intended to repress by civil penalties the practices of itinerants and exhorters It was a high-handed infringement of the rights of conscience, and in a few years fell and buried the party which enacted it in its ruins. This is a law which he exhorted his hearers to set at defiance, and seldom it must be acknowledged has a more plausible occasion been found in New England for preaching disregard of law. He also professed to have been taught by the spirit that the end of the world was near. He knew not the exact time, but it was very near at the close of the first day of his examination when the assembly adjourned in the evening as the sheriff was conducting him to his lodgings he stopped on the front doorsteps of the meeting-house where the session seems to have been held and began to exhort the great crowd that had collected the sheriff took hold of his sleeve to lead him away he exclaimed lord thou knowest somebody's got hold of my sleeve strike them lord strike them pomeroy cried out take heed how you do that heaven daring action their partisans rushed in to resist the sheriff others refused to aid him and called upon for a while the crowd and the tumult increased and it seemed that the sheriff would be overpowered but taking advantage of a little relaxation of the pressure he effected his retreat with his prisoners the disappointed multitude saying as they went we will have five to one on our side tomorrow a mob collected around the gentleman's house where the prisoners were lodged and it was two hours before the magistrates could disperse it sounds of excited devotion were heard in all parts of the town nearly all the night and in the morning a militia force of 40 armed men was ordered out to protect the assembly from insult and interruption Discard was kept on duty till this business was concluded and seems to have been prevented any further public disturbance. Now, there's a lot more to this story in Joseph Tracy's The Great Awakening, but to bring this to a close, I want to insert part of what is written by Bennett Tyler in a footnote on James Davenport in The Life of Asahel Nettleton from Bennett Tyler, The Disorders and Fanaticism of James Davenport. There's a very good account of these disorders, in an old pamphlet containing nine sermons by the rev joseph fish pastor of a church in stonington preached in seventeen sixty three he seems to have been a sound and faithful minister of the gospel he was the pastor of a large and flourishing church which had shared richly in the revival of seventeen forty but his parish was one of the theatres of davenport's operations the result of which was, as he informs us in his preface, that not less than two thirds of his congregation withdrew from his ministry and formed themselves into separate societies. The sermons were preached twenty years after these separations took place, and their object was to make the youth of his flock acquainted with the scenes through which their church and society had passed. As his pamphlet is but little known at the present day, and as the facts which it contains are well worthy to be preserved, I have thought it might be useful to make a few extracts about twenty-three or twenty-four years ago there was the most wonderful work of god that ever was known in this part of the world both for the extent of it and visible appearance it seems there was a general thoughtfulness about religion prevailing in the minds of the people before they made it manifest by word The ministers of Christ were stirred up to preach with uncommon zeal and solemnity, and the people were as ready to hear with unusual attention, while the things of eternity were charged home to the conscience. The work went on gloriously. The standing ministers, there being no other than in the land, became more abundant and fervent in their labors as they saw their people were attentive to hear. Nor did they labor in vain. scarce a sermon could be preached, but the hearts of the people more or less would be touched and some deeply affected. While we were thus engaged in religion, a new and surprising scene opened upon us. Even such religious operations and appearances as engaged both the careless and the serious to come and see and hear for themselves. In these strange operations, there was a marvelous mixture of almost everything good and bad, truth and error, chaff and wheat. For while the spirit of God wrought powerfully, Satan raged maliciously and acted his old subtle part to deceive. This happened, or at least is carried to the highest pitch, under the preaching and ministrations of a wonderful, strange, good man, the Reverend James Davenport of Long Island, who visited these parts in a time of our religious concern and awakening. A young man of undoubted zeal and piety for God, love to souls, and real ardent desire to advance the Redeemer's kingdom, but thus it was permitted a man while with us under the powerful influence of a false spirit and a great part of his conduct as many then told him and as he himself did afterwards acknowledge with deep abasement satan taking the advantage of his zeal and religion transformed himself into an angel of light and hurried him into extremes yea artfully carried him beside the truth and duty and beyond the bounds of decency the things promoted by him that were evidently and dreadfully wronged are such as these he not only gave an unstrained liberty to noise and outcry both of distress and joy in time of divine service but promoted both with all of his might those persons that passed immediately from great distress to great joy and delight which tis true have their place in religion after asking them a few questions were instantly proclaimed converts or said to have come to christ and upon it the assembly were told that a number, it may be ten or fifteen, have come to Christ already, who will come next. When I desired to speak it with sorrow, numbers of such converts, in a little time, returned to their old way of living, were as carnal, wicked, and void of Christian experience as ever they were. Again, he was a great favourer of visions, trances, imaginations, and powerful impressions upon the mind and others, and made such inward feelings a rule of his conduct in many respects especially if the impression came with a test of scripture which he looked upon to be open to him at such a time and in such cases pointing out his duty which he would accordingly pursue upon such powerful impressions and openings of scripture he went to boston strongly persuaded that multitudes in that great city to use his own expressions would be converted by his preaching there But as Jonathan Edwards rightly observes, such circumstances attending religious affections are no sure sign that they are gracious or truly religious. He was a great encourager, if not the first setter up of public exhorters, not restricting them to the gospel rule or order of brotherly exhortations, but encouraging any lively, zealous Christian so reputed to exhort publicly in full assemblies, with all the air and assurance of ministerial authoritative exhorting, although they were exceedingly raw and unskilful in the word of righteousness and altogether unequal to the solemn undertaking however they being very warm and zealous spake boldly and freely which qualities of speech by the way jonathan edwards judiciously observes are no sure signs of gracious religious affections and so were highly esteemed had an admiration and preferred before the letter learned rabbis scribes and pharisees and unconverted ministers which phrases a good man would frequently use in his sermons with such peculiar marks not only of odium but of vindication as served to beget a jealousy in many of the people's minds that their ministers were the latter-learned unconverted teachers which he aimed at. And thus the exhorters came into credit among multitudes of people who chose rather to hear than their old teachers, which served directly to puff them up with spiritual pride and fitted them for the daring undertaking which followed. By these means, the standing ministers began to fall in their credit and esteem among the people, especially among such as were reckoned the foremost Christians, many of whom were the bloated exhorters, and they began to treat their ministers with such assurance, haughtiness, and contempt, as plainly spoke their sentiments, that they knew more and better how to teach than they, especially if the ministers opposed them, or only questioned whether they were right, and thus the seeds of discord and disunion were sown, and a foundation laid for after separations. But what tended more effectually than all that has been said to prepare the way for separation was this that followed, this zealous good man, from a sense hopefully at first of the imminent danger of an unconverted ministry, both of themselves and the people, was betrayed by the false spirit into that bold, daring enterprise of going through the country to examine all the ministers in private, and then publicly to declare his judgment of their spiritual state. And this he did whenever he could be admitted to examine them. Some that he examined, though for aught that appeared as godly as himself, were pronounced in his public prayers immediately after examination to be unconverted, and they who declared this design and practice of his to be unscriptural, and so refused to be examined by him, were sure to suffer the same fate, they were condemned by him as Christless, or which amounted to as much with the populace, he would declare that he had reason of fear they were unconverted in which cases he would ordinarily have no other ground or reason for his fear than that of their refusing submission to his tribunal many good people thinking highly of james davenport as though he was authorized from heaven to proceed in this manner and at the same time having great regard for their own ministers seemed even as much concerned lest they should not stand the trial when examined as if they were going before the judge of all the earth now the counsel of the strained man, which he counseled in those days, was like the counsel of Ahithophel, as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. Multitudes of honest good people believed everything that he said, and had such a veneration for all that he did, that if they could quote the word and example of Davenport, 'twas "'twas enough with them to justify any of the wild and scriptural notions and ways which they through weakness had run into." so that a minister could not gainsay or correct them under the price of his reputation. The things which I have mentioned, to which many more doubtless might be added, were such manifest errors that even the carnal and ungodly world could not but see and know they were wrong. And so in this they agreed with some judicious good people and discerning ministers who opposed him as such and for this reason the good and the bad were ranked together and frequently run upon by those who were zealous for these and declared to be opposers of the work of god and on the enemy's side he that speaks to you being an eye and an ear witness to all or the substance of what has been related is the more free in declaring these things unto you having gone on a year or more, if I mistake not. In the practices above stated, he was, by the gentle treatment and earnest expostulation of some pious and judicious ministers, put upon serious reflection and close examination of his strange conduct in these things, which have been related, and others similar to them. And after some months' deliberation and earnest seeking to the Father of Lights, he was deliberately, clearly, and fully convinced of his errors. The mask, were thrown aside the delusions of satan appeared to him in their own horrid light and the dreadful consequences of his awful mistakes filled him with deep concern he was made sensible of the injury he had done to ministers and churches how he had broke the order of the gospel by causing divisions and offenses and on the whole that he had brought reproach on the glorious work of god and endangered the souls of men. For to these things he was deeply abased, humbled himself before the Lord, and lay in the dust. Upon this he returned and visited many of the places where he had so grievously erred and offended, to see if he might by any means repair the damage he had done. When he came to this town it was with such a mild, pleasant, meek, and humble spirit, broken and contrite, as I scarce ever saw exceeded or even equaled. He not only owned his fault in private, and in a most Christian manner asked forgiveness of some ministers whom he had before treated amiss, but in a large assembly made a public recantation of his errors and mistakes, and particularly mentioned and declared against some, if not all, that I had exposed in this narrative, as well as others that I have not mentioned. He gave a full and solemn testimony to the work of God that was carried on in the land by the outpouring of his blessed spirit in those things that were really and properly God's work. and said that he doubted not, but that he, though, as he added, most unworthy, had been made an instrument for the saving good of many souls. But he declared with all humility and openness of heart that in many things such as above he had grievously erred. He told us how the Lord had led him to a sight of his errors and convinced him fully that he had been under the powerful influence of the false spirit, though in the time of its operation he verily thought was the spirit of God in a high degree. Thus the good man, no longer the noisy, boisterous, rash, and censorious James Davenport, but the meek, humble, and fervent man of God, confessed, bewailed, and warned against the error which he had unhappily spread and promoted— How great and happy the change, but how he is now received and hearkened to by those zealous people who in the time of his wilderness and false zeal were ready to adore him. Why verily that they were not convinced of their own and his former mistakes were far from being pleased by his present conduct. They saw that he was turned against them, that is, against some of their darling principles and ways and thought that he was now become their enemy and know things in which he was only told them the truth they now looked upon him to be cold, dead, and lifeless. The had got away from God and joined in a great measure with the world of opposers and carnal ministers. In a word, they were sadly disappointed, sorely vexed, or disquieted in their spirits, grievously offended, that is, numbers of them, and on the whole, they all rejected his message.